0: On today's episode of Stats and Stories, Ron Fricker and Steve Rigdon will be speaking about surveillance systems for epidemics and other concerns that might surface in public health. This episode was recorded on the 10th of August, 2020, and some of the numbers that are provided may be out of date. There are lots of facts and figures to sift through when it comes to the COVID-19 pandemic. There are death rates and infection rates to consider, as well as the paths of infection in a particular community. Detecting and investigating pandemics is the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm John Baylor. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media Journalism and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me is regular panelist Richard Campbell, former chair of media journalism and film. Rosemary Pennington is unable to join us. We have two guests on the show today. They are the co authors of the recently published book, monitoring the health of populations by tracking disease outbreaks, saving humanity from the next plague, and a recent article for Significance Magazine explaining what happens during a a pandemic investigation. Ron Fricker is a professor of statistics and associate dean for faculty affairs and administration in the Virginia Tech College of Science. His research interests include quality control and statistical process control, statistical methods for biosurveillance, survey design and analysis, and data analysis and data science. Steve Rigdon is a professor of epidemiology and biostatistics at St. Louis University College for Public Health and Social Justice, where he teaches about Bayesian statistical methods. His research interests include biosurveillance, models for election prediction, quality and survival analysis. Thank you both for being here. Maybe you could start by explaining how a pandemic investigation begins. Who makes the call to get one rolling and who decides what's being observed?
1: Ron, you want me to take that? I, I was going to suggest that. Yes.
0: yes. Okay. Um so I think uh, I think that's
2: a function of uh, many of the local health departments that collect data and maintain data and and look for things that are a little bit out of the ordinary uh, where they might infer that there is a, there's a higher disease rate than than there normally is. Hey, can you talk to about
3: the concept of biosurveillance. It sounds kind of ominous. So,
2: <laughs> okay. So biosurveillance is, and it's it's much like quality surveillance. In fact, I think Ron and I both entered this area through the quality area. Um, what we're looking for are things that that are beyond what we expect by chance. Uh, so when when people in a public health department look at data, uh, they have to ask, is this just noise? Is this, is this, is this, could this be explained by just the normal process of, of you know, human disease patterns? Uh, for example, people have influenza all year round, but influenza spikes. So at some point, you have to say, this is more than we would expect by chance. There's really
1: something going on here. It might sound a bit uh, ominous because of bioterrorism, But really, you can sort of think of bioterrorism as being a subset of the question of sort of biosphere surveillance, really trying to look at disease surveillance, you know, both in the animal kingdom, in the plant kingdom, but also among human beings. And that's what Steve is talking about. So so, you know, it can be used for detecting bioterrorism. that's kind of where I started out in the in the defense world. But it really is this biosphere is the idea of biosurveillance.
0: So when you've written about this, you you talk about surveillance having a couple of different forms. One form is the idea of event detection, and the other you characterize as situational awareness. Could you give some context to those ideas, given uh, our current life in a pandemic?
1: Yeah, so um, we sort of live today probably more in the situational awareness space. That is early event detection. The idea is, as Steve was describing, how would we know an outbreak is occurring trying to do as quickly as possible identify that an outbreak has occurred today with COVID 19 we are in a pandemic we don't have to detect it the question now is where is it where is it going what's going to happen so situational awareness is all about the public health community understanding where the disease is uh where it might be going in the future so they can intervene and, and sort of um mitigate the effects of that disease
3: what are some of the challenges when of gathering good data when you have these outbreaks occurring in very different ways, whether they're cities or rural areas and at different times. I mean, the way this thing has started in New York significantly and then spread, and the way a lot of people don't seem to be very worried about it because it has, has they don't, they, I hear the question, the, the, the comment all the time, well, I don't know anybody that has it. And like, that makes it okay. Um, but what are some of the challenges in gathering data when you where it's not the same everywhere in a country of this size?
1: I'd say there are a number of challenges, particularly with COVID. Um, and in fact, some of them, I'd say when we were writing a book, I never envisioned them. So one challenge is this idea of asymptomatic spread. Um, oh. So a lot of my previous work had been in, in terms of syndromic surveillance, where you're actually surveilling people with particular syndromes which are manifestations of disease in this case people can get coronavirus they can transmit it but they can be asymptomatic so so one real challenge is this asymptomatic problem the other issue is that i think we are coming to better grips with but we i'd say as a society aren't fully coming to grips with is the lag in the effects of the disease so Mm -hmm. so there's a lag between when someone gets infected and they transmit it then someone actually is symptomatic so you can observe that effect um and and heaven forbid some people are dying so there's even a greater lag between exhibiting symptoms and someone passing away the mortality that occurs so the combination of asymptomatic spread combined with the delays in observing the effects of the disease i think have really confounded a lot of folks into either believing it's not true or believing it's not present when in fact maybe you just can't observe it or you haven't observed the effects yet
0: you know, there's these issues of evolving definitions as well that seems to percolate in here that are, and that can change some of these counts. But I, I started thinking about, you know, you're, you mentioned health departments are doing this type of monitoring and you have counties and cities and then going up to states then up to countries. And I'm trying to picture what surveillance looks like in the context of a world where you might have different countries that are all doing this type of surveillance for detection. I mean given the intern the, the the connectedness that we have, how does this how does this play out that, you know, when a surveillance system in one country flags it, how do how does another country see that? Are there connections between these these systems is ultimately what I'm trying to ask. It's difficult
2: enough in the United States. Yeah. We're one country and yet we we don't have a uniform standard. Um, And other countries have different standards, too. So it's a real problem. And without some quick agreement, um, it's probably an insurmountable problem. Mm
3: -hmm. One of the uh, (laughs) Uh, things that you talk about in your significance article are the different steps to this. And I'm curious as uh, about why there wasn't more random testing fairly early on in different regions, uh, and what that would have shown, I can remember a politician saying once, "Well, we're not going to test people that don't have it." What would that, you know, not understanding maybe what a control group might do, but we clearly uh, could have learned some stuff, even about the asymptomatic symptoms, uh, had we had we uh, had we done some testing early. What? Why
2: didn't we do more test random testing earlier? Um, are you referring to like? drugs and medications for
3: well i'm just referring to we talk about just testing people just a random test like in ohio right now they're doing a random test of 1200 people to figure out what the percentage of people is that actually have COVID. Uh, so that's the kind of thing that uh and so many i mean we're not doing this at a national level and some states are doing it indiana was one of the first states to do this. Would this have given us a lot of information that may have prevented us from reopening too early, which a lot of states did?
2: Yes. so I I think the information you could get there would be, first of all, a better estimate of how many people have the disease. But within that, you would also have an estimate of the number of people who are asymptomatic. Now, it's trickier than it sounds, because people who test positive may not have COVID, right? Um, I think the governor of Ohio is a, is a case in point for that. So when if you just count, you just can't count people who have tested positive or who have tested positive for antibodies and assume that they have had it. If you do, some of the early studies suggested that 90% of, of people. Were asymptomatic right because if you compare the number of people who had antibodies with and the number of people who actually tested positive for COVID the number who have antibodies is many times greater maybe nine ten times larger but there's the the false positive issue in there so and we don't have a good handle on what the false positive rate is there so there's some uncertainty in there and Some meta-analyses have suggested that the asymptomatic rate is probably about
0: 40%, that those 90% that you hear are probably overstated. Okay, you're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking with Steve Rigdon of St. Louis University and Ron Fricker of Virginia Tech about investigating the COVID-19 pandemic and surveillance systems in general. One question that I had for you when I was looking at, at your uh, significance piece is uh, this came out in April. You had your galley proof sent back in February. February was a different world than now. And, and I'm just curious, as you look back on, on the time that's elapsed since you had, had completed that article, what have been some of the surprises that you've had as you've watched the, the development, the trajectory of this, of, of this pandemic? And, and what things have not surprised you?
1: So one thing I would say is is that just the speed of the pandemic. So just to illustrate, um, back in December, Steve and I were sitting down um, working on page proofs for the book. So that's, what, eight months ago now? We were working on page proofs, and it was Steve that said, hey, you know, I've heard about something going on in Wuhan. And I hadn't even heard that yet. I didn't even know where Wuhan was other than China. And he said, you know, something's going on there, and we talked about it. Uh, and we said, well, geez, you know, maybe we ought to say something in the book. we talk about in the book an, a number of different sorts of diseases and pandemics that have happened in history. Um, and so, you know, we had just sort of a, a one little sentence that we put in there. And if I can find it here. Consider that on November 16th, 2019, Chinese authorities diagnosed a case of pneumonic plague and 55 year old man quarantined and quarantined. Twenty eight people who came in close contact with a man. One sentence. That was all we said at that time. About two weeks later, after we revised this, things were happening quickly. And we said, well, geez, we have to update it because things have happened in two weeks. And so here's what we wrote. In early 2020, an outbreak of coronavirus occurred in Wuhan, China. This outbreak may be linked to a seafood and animal market that was closed on January 1st, 2020. As of mid-January 2020, the disease has killed two people and sickened more than a dozen. Some passengers at airports in the United States will be subjected to enhanced health screening. And so, okay, so we put that in there. Another two weeks goes by. We we're supposed to publish this sometime, I think, in mid-February. Another two weeks goes by. Lots have happened again. Say, so we have to revise it and catch up. So we wrote <laughs> it. It's actually in the book at this point. It says, in late 2019, a novel coronavirus called 2019 NCOV emerged in Wuhan, China. As of early February 2020, the virus had sickened over 30,000 and killed almost 700. In response, quarantines and restrictions on travel from China are being implemented. Time will tell how effective these measures are. Well, time has told, they have not been affected. So here we are, maybe another six or seven months later, 160,000 people have died in the United States alone. Almost 700,000 worldwide, we're at over 5 million cases. It obviously wasn't contained. And could we have even imagined that back in February? We thought 700 deaths was a huge number of that. Wow.
2: Can I add one to that then? Please do. Yeah. Um, so what surprises me a little bit, and it shouldn't, is just how ignorant we are about what causes the disease that we're seeing for the first time, right? So if you think back, we weren't real sure how quickly this could spread or would spread. Things like, is it airborne? Um, you know, what can you do to treat it? Um in fact, even now we we still don't have good answers to some of those questions, and it's been eight months or so since it's it's come to the United States. So, in the beginning, kind of like the fog of war, it's just we don't we don't see the things um, that that may be obvious in a, a year from now.
3: Uh, You're talking yeah. about uncertainty here. And we've talked a lot about that in this podcast over the years. Uh, an obstacle that I I think comes into this is people want certainty right now, and it just isn't there. And uh, one of the things that I w- wondered if both of you could talk about is most of us get our information about this through journalism, through, through news media. How have you, do you have an idea of how good the coverage has been on this, uh, given how crazy and weird the world is right now. And what could journalists and media do better that they're not that they're not doing right now?
1: My experience, I've had the opportunity because of this book and because of the significance article, we'll to talk to a lot of journalists in the past few months. My experience is they've done actually quite a good job. Um, they've been very thoughtful, they've been very careful. Um, I've been contacted by journalists to help them do an analysis of data. And in fact, in one case, they had a story they wanted to publish and we did the analysis. And it turned out that, that the conclusions they were they thought were there were not there. And the story wasn't published. So I've actually been very impressed. On the flip side, in the social media world, I've been somewhat sometimes horrified and scared. Um, because some of the things I've published in that world have generated some really interesting responses from people who are looking for reasons for the pandemic and are looking for particularly, man-made reasons. And they are yeah. trying to find these things that aren't there and trying to find reasons um, for the occurrence of the pandemic that simply aren't true. Yeah.
3: How much is an op- of an obstacle is it? I mean, even before this started, we've been living in a time where there's a lot of distrust of science and data just a lot of misinformation. I don't know if you addressed that in your book or not, but we've talked on the podcast a lot about how we can do a better job of explaining to people just how important data and science are. And uh, and we've seen, uh, we're paying a lot more attention to this stuff now. So how do you deal with that? That just distrust of science that, that has kind of permeated our, our politics uh, and our news media.
1: Yeah, it's, it's a challenge in our society. I would say that's one of the things that's caused us to struggle so much with solving this pandemic, where other societies and other countries have done so much better than we have, because we really aren't trusting and following the science is really an issue. But, but again, I would say my experience with the news media I've talked to has been, been quite good. But there are others who truly do not do not trust it, and and that's a challenge. I don't know how we how we gain that trust back.
2: And if uh, most people think of science as being definitive, right? Yes. They don't think mm-hmm. of science as we learn a little bit every time we get new evidence. They think, well, science. If if anything in the world is certain, it's science. And in a case like this, it's not.
1: I think that's exactly right. Steve, Steve hit uh, hit on it very well. I think. Yeah. It's also they're often looking for a simple answer, and sometimes things aren't simple.
0: Yeah, I, I, Steve, I like that. I, the, you know, this, this emphasis of science is a way to understand the world—not that you get perfect understanding from it, but it's a process—and that's a that seems like that's an important part of the story. I'd I'd like to give you a, so I'm going to let you be in charge of the world now, and you can <laughs> you can design this the system that we need for future threats. So I, i'm my i'm gonna guess that this is not the last pandemic we're going to experience in our lives given that it's not the first i mean now it's it's the first really big dramatic unbelievably impactful one in terms of this the scope and and the con the, the damage that it's done but but if you know i'd like you to think a little bit think and reflect on you know do we have an adequate surveillance system in place not just in the us but but in the world for detecting this? And if not, what could we do to strengthen this? So let's assume you have no constraints and you could you could ma- wave a magic wand and create a system that would, would allow us to respond better. What, what might be characteristics of it?
1: I want to change the question just slightly.
0: <laughs> that's, a, that's an old academics trick. <laughs> because,
1: because what I want to say is the surveillance systems we have, I think, are pretty good. It's not as if we didn't okay. see this coming in, in, the okay. in particular. Um, so, so yeah. could they be improved? Sure. Could we put more resources to them? Sure. I think one of the things we've struggled with is not on the surveillance side, it's on the public health side. Our public health system has not been probably adequately resourced, adequately funded, So, and, and, and our testing system. We are struggling to keep up with this pandemic because we don't have enough testing infrastructure, because we don't have enough public health infrastructure to actually manage the, the, the pandemic itself.
0: Uh, okay, so I'm, I'm I'm happy with how you rewrote my question there, there Ron. I, I think I like you know. <laughs> I think that's a that's a good point.
3: Could I ask a real practical question? Both of you are at university, St. Louis and Virginia Tech. So, what are you doing? Like, what do you tell kids, you know, the the students? Uh, how are we handling? We everybody seems to be kind of on their own. At Miami, we're we we're starting school online August 17th and going a month, and then we look like we may have a move in date in September. Uh, but who knows what this, this sort of reminds me of the problem that you faced when you were writing your book, things are changing rapidly. Uh, so what's St. Louis and Virginia tech doing?
2: Um, so St. Louis university is having face to face classes starting August 17th. Um, they plan to test every student, uh, when they return to campus, um, and for those that test positive, they will either quarantine or ask them to go back home. Um, and they're leaving open the possibility of closing. Um, but most classes are going to be face-to-face. Um, a lot of classes will be online. Um, St. Louis University has made it so we could request um, that our classes be online, and those in high-risk groups were generally accorded that?
1: We're somewhat similar to, to St. Louis. Um, so we're freshmen start arriving on the 14th, we are, we are opening, <clears throat> and, um, but we're not gonna have all face-to-face classes. So we're shooting for about a third face-to-face. Um, we may not come in quite that high with some hybrid classes, a lot of online classes uh, we've actually stood up our own testing lab, um, um, and uh, we're using that both to test students and hopefully to do some surveillance. I'm actually involved in a group here where we are trying to model what what the disease looks like and what transmission might look like on campus and trying to understand how, how we might surveil and intervene as, as appropriate. Um, I think the jury's out though as to whether we actually make it through the semester. Um, we, we shall see, right? This, I think a challenge of this disease not only because of the asymptomatic spread, but it, it's sort of nonlinear, right? It, it, it kind of explodes. But if you miss it enough, the exponential growth takes off. And so, a surveillance issue here is: can we catch things in time before we have exponential growth that we can't control? I think that's true in the country, but we're facing a microcosm of that on our campus.
0: I really liked your uh, that your comments and in, in your in a Chance article that you wrote about about historical warning systems. I, I i thought that you 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 mentioned that that there was folk wisdom that warned but the rats started dying it's time to flee and you also then you closed with a sen- sentiment that su- surveillance has come a long way but the spirit remains the same know when diseases are coming and take the necessary steps to minimize the damage I right, that's that's the, uh, those are words of wisdom for our time and and uh, we we thank you for the work that that you've been doing I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Ron and Steve, thank you so much for being here.
1: Thank you for having us.
0: Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media Journalism and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter, Apple Podcasts, or other places where you can find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on our program, send your email to Stories at MiamiOH.edu. Or check us out at StatsAndStories.net and be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.